IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, review albums, and we hash out trends. In this episode, we revisit the LCD sound system documentary, Shut Up and Play the Hits, on the film's 10th anniversary. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host. This is his farewell concert before the reunion tour in five years. Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? Yeah, I think that is more true than you might think. I mean, I I, I got to let the IndieCast listeners know that I'm I'm doing this episode under protest because you know my supposed friend and co-host Stephen Hyden committed what in my mind is like the borderline one of the most unforgivable betrayals I can imagine, which is... What what are you talking about? Posting something I contributed to from the LA Weekly in 2012, I think. Like, that's like posting baby pictures, like the same embarrassment, except like you're 32 and probably should have known better. Oh, Um, man. Like, it's it's like... You're blindsiding me with this. I didn't know that this was... uh causing beef between us that i because what you're talking about uh is on twitter this week i someone tweeted out this la weekly feature that ran 10 years ago on the 20 worst bands of all time and um some of the bands included on this list include oasis fleet foxes which that's a time capsule that people Hated Fleet Foxes enough in 2012 to mm-hmm. put them on a list like this. A band that just seems totally innocuous now. Red Hot Chili Peppers, Rush, Pearl Jam, Sex Pistols, Eagles. Mm. Dave Matthews Band was number one. Okay. Um, and I was going through this list, and I come across the LCD sound system blurb, <laughs> and I realized that you wrote it. Yeah. Dangerous combination at that time of like having little to no oversight. Uh, and also just like, that was like one of the few times I was only writing, uh, as a source of income. So I was just doing whatever. That is a dangerous combination. But, you know, reading your blurb, I mean, you you talk about how the albums have a lot of filler. Yes. That they made a workout mix for people who don't go to the gym, (laughs) which I thought was pretty funny. You talk about how, you know, LCD sound system being an example of, you know, glamorizing, New York City mm-hmm. and like a, like a late 70s version of New York City. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like these are opinions that you would disavow 10 no. years later, right? I mean, you 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 agree with all that stuff still, don't you? Yeah, except maybe I would say like early 80s New York. Yeah, I agree with all that stuff, but I, I you know, I think the thing that just there I I just think of how like Khalifa Sana in his book um, you know, major labels talks about how every so often uh and the article that he wrote about how the first Beyonce solo album, like she's Noah Shanti, gets recirculated <laughs> and just that like welling up of embarrassment. Now, it seems like he's way more well adjusted than I am to reckoning with his past. And it sounds like you are as well. That's something I need to work on. <laughs> We're going to, this is a sneak preview of our uh, uh, Shut Up and Play the Hits conversation because I wrote a piece about this film for Uprox this week and I mm-hmm. quoted a think piece I wrote right before the Madison Square Garden concert that's depicted in the film that caused Slate to call me out in a think piece. Oh, like that, okay. That That's when you know that you've achieved a certain level of notoriety as a critic, when Slate is calling you out in a think piece. <laughs> and, I, and I quoted my think piece uh, in my... Uh, 
Uproxx piece this week, and it is like one of the most embarrassing things I think I've I've ever written. It was a open letter to James Murphy, which the open letter, yeah. uh, you know, conceit, which was very big a decade ago. I feel like I yeah. mean, th- j- just right there, you know, it's terrible. So, you know, I wasn't taking shots. I thought to me the interesting thing about that list was how. It, in a way, it kind of made me nostalgic in a very <laughs> weird way because when was the last time you saw a publication do a trolley music list like that? Like where they're talking about the worst of something. It That used to be a staple and you never see that anymore. Yeah, well, first off, when was the last time you saw like an, a functioning alt weekly? <laughs> um, you know, Yeah, that- but like, you know, like Noisy, I feel like used oh, to yeah. do things like this all the time. And, uh, you know, Blender Magazine back in the aughts would do things like this. It just seemed like there was a tradition of, you know, poking the bear, you know, making mm-hmm. people angry with this sort of thing. And publications don't do that anymore. In, in fact, you know, we're now in a moment where people are inclined to write the you think this sucks, but it's actually great piece mm-hmm. more than the thing you think is great sucks piece. And, you know, look, I'm a, I kind of think that's progress in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, I, I don't know, there was something about seeing that that made me feel a little wistful. Maybe just because you were going to be talking about Shut Up and Play the Hits, that's mm-hmm. a film that marks time. You know, mm-hmm. that list kind of marked time for me in a way. Oh, absolutely. I mean, like, I, I'm definitely brought back to... You know my life in 2012, which you know not 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 my finest moment, but you're you're right in that like back in those days when you know maybe Twitter was less developed and there wasn't as much of like an ecosystem of uh, you know stand to mobilize like you could do something like that. Also, there were like a ton of publications that just needed content that was always going to get the motor running. But you know nowadays it's like you could say something vaguely nice, like not fawning and still get the same response of like uh you know the the same like firestorm because um you know back back in 2012 and i think and and beforehand and what i'm nostalgic for is that you know you say something snarky about lcd sound system or in my case like that very same day i got two emails uh about a review i wrote about once again kid cuddy's album um man on the moon which that one is eternal and a kooks review that i wrote i think in 2008 so that oh, was man. the epitome of the backlash you would get you would get an email from someone at three in the morning talking you know the usual talking points about me living in my basement about uh yeah. me being a virgin etc but like you, you you step on the wrong toe even accidentally nowadays um, and you know, your life could be more, not ruined, but like more or less ruined. <laughs> Can I just say, you know, the, the, this, uh, the thing about, you know, living in a basement, yeah. uh, when I was a teenager, I wanted to have my bedroom in the basement mm-hmm. and it was awesome. And it, <laughs> it felt like my own apartment. And yeah, if I was in my thirties or something living in my mom's basement, that wouldn't be good. But I just want to say, you know. Standing up for basements here. I, I just yeah. feel like that's always the uh, the go-to slam. I live in California. There are no basements. So, well, there I you mean, go. That, that would be a huge deal if someone had a basement. That's true. Um, you know, when I posted uh, a link to that list and I was talking about, like, you don't see lists like this anymore. I wonder why. Some people said what you were saying where there's almost like this thing with social media now, like where uh, – 
either people are channeling their negativity into social media so you don't need pieces like this or there's a fear that you're going to get piled on if you mm. write a piece like this. I also saw people, you know, bring up poptimism because mm. <laughs> you know, that's oh, always the yeah. bugaboo. That's a boogeyman, you know, that's always very effective. This idea that, like, well, we dislike everything now. You know, you can't be critical about anything. I really don't think it's that. No. And this is the same thing that comes up when people talk about how there's not as many negative reviews anymore. I think the reason why that's true is that there's just, like, a lot more music writers who have expertise Mm -hmm. in certain areas. And it's like, if you're going to, you know, write about an emo record or a rap record or a country record, there's a writer out there who is an expert in that genre and they're more apt to write from a more sort of understanding, empathetic Mm -hmm. point of view rather than what you used to have where there was a critic who worked for like an alt-weekly or something, like a Robert Crisco, who just reviewed everything, even though there were clearly things that he wasn't into. Uh, I I do kind of miss that, like, personally. Like, I I look back on the, you know, that era, like, 2008, 2012, and I thought it was, like, fun, you know, to to review things outside my typical scope. And I also think that helps, you know, develop a certain kind of personality as a writer. Like, a lot of my favorite writers are people who were uh, covering all sorts of genres. And, you know, you get an idea of, like, how they they see the world. And, you know, I... but I think that is the understated reason you don't see as many pans anymore. Um, you know, besides the obvious, like I don't want to ruin my real life job, uh, by, you know, by writing something that people don't like about a Kid Cudi album. It's like, you yeah. know, now it's like, oh, I understand what they're trying to do in this genre. So um, you have more specialists. So I'm not going to be reviewing a minimal techno album. I'm not going to be reviewing a death metal album. I'm not going to be reviewing like a, a rap record made for 18-year-olds. I mean, it's tough because people will often say, well, you just said, they're like, oh, I miss seeing negative reviews. But then you're not going to miss it if the reviewer is writing about something you like and they don't get it. Like, exactly. If, you know, that's like when people complain about pitchfork reviews of emo records in the <laughs> 2000s. I mean, that's where that comes from. It's just people maybe who weren't really fans of those kind of bands writing about them and... 20 years later, you still see people complaining about it on, on Twitter. Yeah. So, you know, I don't know. Um, we had some breaking news, right? Before breaking we news. Uh, we always complain that news breaks right after we're done recording. So <laughs> we wanted to report this. And there will be old news, I guess, by the time this posts. But uh, Taylor Swift. Yes. The ambassador of Record Store Day. Why not her? I mean, like, can you, when, you, when you think about, like, how folklore and evermore – uh, boosted the um, you know boosted vinyl sales and maybe it'll be like the Grammys where like Adele will be 2023's uh, vinyl ambassador but like I-, I know that like like why not Taylor Swift if you really think about like who is actually getting um, vinyls sold yeah so be it I, I think so right It'd be kind of like if uh, if record store day existed in 1984 and they made like Michael Jackson. Uh, the Record Store Day ambassador. <laughs> I mean, you know, you're right. She sells a lot of vinyl. I guess you think these independent stores, you, they might be aligned with like an independent artist, mm. not the biggest pop star in the world. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> I'm not I'm not emotionally invested at all yeah. in Record Store Day. So, you know, good on them if this gets more people into stores, which I'm sure it will because whatever Taylor Swift does. Yeah. Um, it gets people out there. I mean, she's, she even helped move the needle on CDs, you know, her and Adele. Yeah. You know, I I, uh, I have a piece actually running today where I, 
I wrote a uh, Ask a Music Critic column and someone was asking me about the CD revival because that's become a like, narrative. Is that is that like the ska revival in that like well, a 1% uptick in interest? Like, or is there like a real, real, real Well, CD it's tied revival? to because uh, CD sales have been going down every year for so, like 16 years. And this mm-hmm. year is the first year that they've gone up. But if you look at the numbers, you know, they went up 1.1% over uh. 2020. They went from 40.2 million to 40.6 million. Yeah. Um, but like the Adele record sold, I think, something like 400,000 CDs in its first week. And the week before that, the Taylor Swift record sold about 150,000 CDs. Mm-hmm. So assuming that they don't put out albums every year, you know, if you were to remove just those week of sales, yeah, CD sales go down again. You know, so, yeah. but you know, look, I hate saying that because I'm, of course, a CD booster. I like mm-hmm. to think of myself as an ambassador of CD Nation, just like Taylor Swift is an ambassador of Record Store Day. Yeah. Um, so, but I don't know. I, I I'm trying not to let my enthusiasm cloud my judgment on this. I mean, I, I would love for this like small completely unsustainable uptick in CD sales <laughs> to like result in uh, like uh, like a Sam Goody reboot like it becomes this like boutique uh like it becomes like the the kind of uh the the what's the word I'm looking for the enthusiast store like you know how right. the scene like back in the day is like you know the big the big box competitor to your local uh, record store. Like now Sam Goody is for like the connoisseurs and right. you know what? Like if, if you want IndieCast to be there to help, uh, you know, spur sales at your new open CD store, like we are totally up for that. We yes. will be, we will be your ambassador. We work, we, we are very open. We work cheap. Uh, yeah, we're there for a ribbon cutting, yeah. ribbon cutting, any kind of, you know, uh, yeah, openings, you know, grand opening celebrations. I will say too, and this is something I wrote about in my piece that's running today on Uprocks, mm-hmm. the Ask a Music Critic column talking about the CD revival. In terms of indie bands, I will say, like I talked to Riley Walker about this, who's another ambassador of, of oh, CD yeah. Nation. And he was talking about how like for him, because he has his own record label, if he wants to put out an album, at a bare minimum, it costs about $5 per vinyl to manufacture for a cd it's like 90 cents per Mm. cd and there's also no huge backlog for manufacturing cds so i don't know i i do think that there could be an emerging argument for music fans out there that want to buy physical media to support Mm. artists that they love that not that you should stop buying vinyl but that cds are should be looked at as a more viable alternative to vinyl like if you can't get a record Buy a CD, you know, and because I think there's a lot of good things about CDs, and they're and they're a lot cheaper and more convenient right now than vinyl. I think for a lot of indie artists, I so badly want to buy one of those five CD changer stereos I used to have when I was eighteen. Like I, I like buying a new one of those was like the equivalent of like buying a new car for me. It was just like okay, this is like proof that I've like leveled up. Uh, I have one in my office. Yeah, I, I would I totally be office. open to that. Like the one with like the the top loading clear one that you could see it like move. <laughs> off. Another member of CD Nation is uh, the critic Hanif Abdurraqib. Like he was 
tweeting about this recently. Apparently, he went to a, a store in his town. I believe he lives in Columbus, Ohio, mm-hmm. and they had it at the store. I don't know if he went to like a Best Buy Ooh. or uh, you know uh, a Sears or something. <laughs> but like, he, uh, there's probably a Sears in Columbus. I think there's a Sears in Minneapolis, a, g- a Gimbal's or something there's like a, that. <laughs> so I think I don't know. CD Nation. It's it's not going to take over. But, you know, the, there's a healthy population there. Yeah. Um, should we talk quick about the uh, When You Were Young uh, oh, lineup? Yeah, man. Or When that, We Were Young. When say. We Were Young. Yeah, not when we, me and Stephen Hyden, host of IndieCast, but like when we, meaning you. Yes. Were, <laughs> yeah, this. A punk I, and emo festival. Got My Chemical Romance. Paramore. Paramore Bright Eyes. Yeah. Jimmy Eat World. All of uh, them. All like every kind of significant punk or emo band from like the two thousands. Yeah, and I on this bill. I mean, I feel like this story like came in like the the churn for the takes on this one like was lightning quick. But here's one question: like I've only asked like in my group DMs where we discuss emo bands. Like I have several of them. Like everyone, I had to pose this question. I was not. like, I am not ready to put this one out, like, on Twitter because, like, God knows what sort of backlash. But, like, when you look at the bands on this on this bill, the level of the bands on this bill, and also the time period, uh, and, you know, and we've talked about this a little bit on previous episodes, but, like, you have to believe there's at least a 50% chance that Live Nation at least kicked the tires on brand new. Yeah, I would imagine. And it's funny because some of the reaction I saw to the lineup, people were asking why Brand New wasn't on the lineup. <laughs> which there I are think, some people who don't know about everything that has happened with Jesse Lacey. Exactly, over the past five years. exactly. It just speaks to how that scandal um, you know, it didn't necessarily blow up in the same way that like the Ryan Adams thing did. Well, I, I would I would say the Brand New one was bigger than the Ryan Adams one, but like it's not, it's not like say R. Kelly, you know. Well. Do you think it was better than? Because I mean, Ryan Adams had like a New York Times story about it. The, the brand new thing, like, where I mean, I think that was reported in like the music press. I don't feel like it crossed over in the same way. I, I think that it Adams did. did. I think it like I think that is like a a time and place, like an end of times type thing. Because like brand new was still like extremely popular, celebrated, beloved, and. Um, yeah, I would say that um, b- brand new like had a more huge impact as far as the scene as a whole. But nonetheless, like you will, st- I will still meet in life real people who liked brand new, stopped liking brand new, and then like, oh, they're canceled. Like I just stopped paying attention. Same with Ryan Adams, I suppose. But either way, it's like with you know with with, with this thing, it, you gotta wonder if they even considered it. But um. Look, man, with this festival as a whole, I, 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 the one thing that like bothered me is not so much the, oh, like emo sucks It all. These bands always sucked. It's more that like the same people, did you know the same people behind Astro World put on this festival? It's like, yeah, Live Nation, you know, wait till you hear about like Bonnaroo and every other See, thing they do. What was the, like, what's the substance of that? Is the Newsweek, a Newsweek article, like, it, like a Newsweek article is like breaking news. We have gotten to the bottom of when we are a young festival and it turns out I mean, the same ghouls behind. Is the controversy that like all oh, these bands shouldn't associate with, with Live Nation because they come, because they have the punk ethos? Is, well, is that the more criticism? that like, more that like, 
wait a minute, after Astro World, you're going to like jam like a oh, hundred right. bands into a single day. Like, and that's the thing that really messed me up is that, wait a minute, you're going to do all this in like one day, which I don't think that's such a bad idea because a lot of the bands on, on this, it's like, yeah, I could, I could hang with maybe 15 minutes worth of music. You give them like 30 minutes, like the typical festival slot and Hey, this is a song from our new album. Boo. And you know what? So yeah, 10 minutes. Like that's all I need from like some of these bands. You know, what was weird to me, and maybe I'm wrong, the only newish band I saw on the bill was Car Seat Headrest, which I don't understand. Uh, Manchester like Orchestra's why. on there. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Manchester Orchestra, Wolf Alice. Okay. But Manchester has roots in the aughts. Of course, though, so yeah. That, and, you know, so they make more sense, but how much crossover is there between, yeah, like Car Seat Headrest, Wolf Alice, and like the punk and emo world? I don't really see that. But I don't know. I could I, be wrong. I, I love that booking for car seat headrest because um, <laughs> I love that, like if you look on the actual poster, like they're not sur- they're surrounded by the most metalcore uh, bands imaginable. Like they're not like next to Jimmy Eat World or like Taking Back Sunday bands that have some crossover. It's like car seat headrest encircled by motionless and white. Ice Nine Kills, like, um, Pierce the Veil. Uh, Look, you got to take the money where it's coming from. And also, I do think there is a lot of crossover between um, Car Seat Headrest and uh, this style of music because they're they're huge on Tumblr, Reddit, places like that. Now, what does Will Toledo think about being associated with these acts? Fuck, I don't know. Did he know that... Uh, when he took this booking that it was going to be for like the When We Were Young Festival because I do know that there are certain festivals that like book bands that like and they don't let on like what the festival's theme is or the other bands on it. It's just like, oh, Live Nation is giving us X amount of money. We're going to do it. Oh, wait. Like this is an Evo Wouldn't they they have known the name of the festival though? I feel like the festival name is uh, really catering to the nostalgia aspect of this oh, i know it's a it's, it's a killer's reference but um, <laughs> which in itself is like uh wh- like what does this have to do with like emo and punk i don't know i mean you know i made a joke about this festival like when it was announced not disparaging the bands but mm. just the uh nostalgia aspect of it you know and people always make jokes about festivals like this but again and we've talked about this on the show that I always feel like festivals like this are preferable to a Coachella. And then that's yes. probably because I'm an older person. But I, I do I, – because, again, festivals are not an ideal place to actually, like, see a new band, uh, I don't think. I mean, because it doesn't sound very good. It's crowded. It's not the you know most conducive just listening environment. But if you're going for a party – you know, you want to hear bands that you know and just have a good time. And that's what this bill seems like to me. So I'm sure it'll do great. Just, uh, what was it? <laughs> just Like Heaven, that festival? Oh, yeah. Have they done that a few years now? They've, just like they heaven? did it in 2019. Um, I believe that the one happening this year that I will definitely be going to, should it, you know, still happen, uh, That this will be the second one. But, yeah, it, it's like... Oh, like the only reason I want to see new bands on festivals is because that means they've gotten paid. And, you know, I do like to right. see bands get paid. Um, but, it, like, yeah, something like this, like I would so much rather see some, like a specialist type thing than 
you know, a, a, a kind of a weak sauce version of Coachella where it's just like another another version of like run the jewels, Japanese breakfast. Wow. How many times can you see them play 30 minutes on like mm. a, you know, uh, on a festival stage? What a what a treat, you know? Well, let's get to our mailbag segment. Thank you all uh, for writing in. We actually had a huge influx of, uh, of, of emails after the last episode, after I said that we did, our, our mailbag was running a little dry. People stepping up, writing us tons of emails. Appreciate that. If you want to hit us up, we're at IndieCastMailbag at gmail.com. Um, I feel like I should read this one because it's a question posed to you. Yes. Uh, so uh, it says, hi, Stephen Ian, longtime listener, first time caller. As a big fan of The Grateful Dead and 36 from The Vault, that's my Grateful Dead podcast, doing a little crossover action right here. <laughs> um, I'm curious to know Ian's thoughts on The Dead. Mm. Could there be a segment in which Ian listens to some key tracks and gives his review? Great idea. Uh, bonus points for doing the same with the hottest new jam band, Goose. Yes, <laughs> thanks for the Goose shout out. Yeah. Not Geese, Goose. Goose, by the way, shout out to Goose. They just booked a show at Radio City Music Hall. Yes, I saw that. Cute. They're, I'm telling you, blown up. He says, thanks. It's from Ryan in Traverse City, Michigan. Ah, uh, it's like the, indie, um, it's the indie cast, like mailbag listener, Mad Lib. Like Ryan from Traverse City, Michigan. Like that absolutely. is. Absolutely. Um, is there, I remember if the, I've been to Traverse City. I don't think I've been there. Huh. But I like Michigan. Been to a bunch of places in yeah. Michigan. What a wait a minute! Isn't there wasn't there already a show where like people would listen to the Grateful Dead like song? It was either that or the Red Hot Chili Peppers. No, it was the Dead. It was okay. Uh, it, well, no, there was a show called Analyze Fish. That's it. Yes, that's yeah, the one. yeah. That so, <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're not gonna do this segment. Okay, good. Uh, right? Because you're not. Well, I mean, look. If you want to do it, I mean, we'll look. Out, we'll we'll bust out some like. The, the the 37 minute dark star from 921 72 <laughs> yeah and then i'll bust some like vanita dark star on you from the previous month often considered the best dark star of all time at least in the conversation mm. uh yeah we could just do like i can bust out some like like a dark star mix for you like a 10 hour dark star mix okay uh, you you want to start with that yeah like, sure why not just throw you in the deep end yeah i mean if that if that's what it takes i mean like look you know come Come like uh, uh, July or like December, like one of those notoriously like slow times for music. Like maybe that's our move for the episode instead of doing like a mailbag or doing like a, you know, doing an IndieCast Hall of Fame. We're just going to like live, like live cast me listening to a, you know, the fairly tight 37 minute Dark Star from like Cornell or whatever. But um, yeah, as far as like my thoughts on the dead, um. You know, one of the, one thing I've like come to realize just from following my co-host's career uh, through his writings and books and podcasts and so forth is that I have so many blind spots in my classic rock, uh, you know, listening experience. Like, I really thought I was immersed in that shit in high school, but like, I've never like before this year, I'd never heard a full Rolling Stones album. Uh, never listened to a full Bob Dylan album. You know, I tried. I'm like, I'm going to listen to Bob Dylan chronologically. And like, I kind of stopped around like Dylan, uh, the self-titled, um, you know, soft on Pink Floyd, never heard a band record, but like with those bands, I feel I could, you know, just dedicate myself to listening to the albums, maybe reading a book, um, and, you know, just have, you know, have something to work with. But like whenever I consider the dead, uh, not even just thinking about like the cultural baggage they accumulated 
just by nature of me being around the Jewish youth group scene in uh you know in the in the mid Atlantic in the mid nineties, like Grateful oh, Dead, man. honorary Jews, um, same as Dave <laughs> Matthews band, honorary Jews. They're like Fish in the same too. category as Billy Joel, as far as I'm concerned, on that front. I think um, Fish has some of that too. Yes, absolutely. Um, oh. Yeah, if you go to the Jewish fraternity at any like uh, East Coast public university like Penn State or Rutgers or Syracuse, uh, yeah, like it's going to be playing. You're going to hear some dead. But um, even like if putting that aside, um, because I think, you know, it's kind of funny that we're talking about this because I think emo and the Grateful Dead are like two of the two of the things that have received like the biggest turnaround as far as critical acclaim in, in the past 10 years. I, I just whenever I consider the dead as something like maybe I should explore this, it just seems like I'd have to make that's like a lifestyle choice. <laughs> like I, it, it would be like taking up a third job where I don't get paid uh, because Every single person who has told me about the dead, because I've done the, you know, oh, you should listen to Working Man's Dead. That's the Grateful Dead album for people who don't really, who think they don't like the Grateful Dead. It's like, you know, you got to go to the live show. You got to hear the bootlegs and not just one bootlegs, but you got to like absorb all the bootlegs so you can get a really good sense of like, what's the difference between a good 37 minute dark star and a just okay 37 minute dark star. I just don't have time for that shit. And like, that's, Honestly, like, n- no offense to the Grateful Dead. Like, I just, I, I just look at my life and it's like I can't fit this in. <laughs> yeah, you know, I was trying to think of like what would be the equivalent if we were to switch tables here, and mm. I was going to get into something that you like that requires just hours and hours of attention. You know, like your like your lifestyle comment. You know, the idea that you can't just, like, go on Spotify and listen to a couple records and feel like you get the gist. You got to, like, listen to a ton of stuff. And I was thinking about that rapper, RX Nephew. <laughs> I know you've, like, tweeted about a bunch. Yes! And I, and I know that dude's got, like, 400 songs or something. Just, like, a ridiculous amount of, like, material <laughs> out there. And I feel like that is, like, my jam band equivalent to you. And I kind of had this... I had a similar thing like with hip hop in general about 10 years ago where I was like, this genre is changing so much. And like the artists at the Vanguard are like putting out so much material that like, it's really hard to be a casual fan and like know anything because you have to keep up with this. And if it's not, if you're not obsessed about it, you certainly can't write about it, but Mm. even just following it can be really difficult or like hardcore, I think is a similar thing. There's so many hardcore bands and you know, I don't want to blame everything on the internet, but it does feel like now, like with any genre, you kind of have to be obsessed with it to know anything about it. It's so easy to fall behind because there's so much material Mm -hmm. and Again, it just made me think of what you were saying about the Grateful Dead because it's not just them. I feel like that's everything now. Yeah. You know, like where it's like, man, this looks cool. I'm, you know, people are talking about it. I could see myself getting into it, but it's like, man, I don't have enough time. Yeah. I, it's hard enough to keep up with the things I love. Mm-hmm. It's hard to sometimes delve into these other areas. Not that you just like want to stay in your lane. You know, I'm always trying to explore new things, but you got to be tactical about it. I mean, the same for yeah. me with hip hop. Like, I. Like I, like back in 2012, that LA Weekly article, I was writing about hip hop a lot, and then all of a sudden, you know, you 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 ease off on the gas just a little, and then you just 
okay, this is not my game anymore. But, but with RXK Nephew, let me just tell you this. If you subscribe is it to RX, the... Because I know it's spelled RXK Nephew, but I saw a piece where it says you, you don't say the K. Uh, I, maybe you do. I said... It's, uh, not, it's not someone I talk about. Like, I don't say that name a lot. It's like an exclusively I talk about this online thing. But I, I listen... Like, if you subscribe to his YouTube channel... Like, he might drop an average of, like, seven minutes of music per day. I listen to that on my way to the gym. That's how I keep up. It's actually quite – his demands are actually quite reasonable. (laughs) It's just interesting to me because I feel like that's not that dissimilar to following a jam band like Goose, for instance, and going on nugs.net and listening (laughs) to, like – the most recent show. Of course, those those are like two hours long. Yes. But, you know, there may not be um, – but, you know, the tours come and go. You can catch up later. But, you know, it's a similar kind of thing, like where it's like a constant dribble of material that you're keeping up with. And if you're into it, it's really cool. But to be like, I'm going to get into this, it's a little intimidating, I think. Uh, so, anyway, I don't, hopefully this is the first time people have linked – RXK nephew to Goose. Yeah, this is a this is a conversation I want to continue yeah. having on the show. But uh, we have to get to the meat of our episode. Yeah, speaking of old music, <laughs> uh, which is talking about "Shut Up and Play the Hits." Uh, this is a film that uh, debuted at the Sundance Film Festival ten years ago this week. It went on to play theatrical theatrically for just one night in July mm. of, of of 2012, and then it came out on DVD and Blu-ray. I think the following fall or so. Um, this is a film I wrote about for Uprocks. I was interested in revisiting this th- this movie because there's been some talk about LCD sound system lately. A lot of it not very positive. Nope. Uh, you know, there was uh, that run of shows that they did in, at, at Brooklyn Steel in uh, December, m- many of which were canceled, and you know there was a report blaming LCD sound system for like spreading COVID, which it seemed like a pretty unfair thing to say. I don't even know how you could have tracked that yeah. uh, in, in New York. Uh, and then also LCD Sun System was criticized uh, for partner partnering with Amazon on a recent holiday special. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just got me thinking about this movie, which I knew was coming up as an anniversary. And I was... I knew I was going to be writing about it, and I encouraged you to see it. You had never seen it before, right? I had never seen it. So, and I, I remember seeing it when it came out. I think I reviewed it when it came out. But I hadn't seen it since 2012. And it's interesting to me. I'm going to pose this to you as, I guess, as a conversation starter here. Mm. That to me, when I rewatched the movie, it seemed pretty obvious to me that the original decision to end the band by James, you know, James Murphy's, Murphy's decision to do that, which, of course, he went back on five years later, and it makes the movie, I think, seem pretty preposterous in <laughs> retrospect. I mean, to me, this movie is like an unwitting satire in mm. a lot of ways of aughts era indie rock, and mm. we can get into that. But to me, like watching the movie, it's pretty clear that you know James Murphy is this very self-aware person. He knows a lot about music history, mm. and that this concert was his attempt to essentially engineer the kind of ending for his band that he thought that future generations would look back on it and revere, Mm -hmm. you know, in the same way that he's the kind of person that reveres cool old bands from the past. And it's fascinating to me that this person who I think was very self-conscious about appearing on cool 
has kind of seen his worst nightmares play out with <laughs> LCD sound system 10 years later. Yeah. Where this is a band that is not, I don't think, considered very cool. They are, I think, still really popular in a lot of ways, but like they're a band that now I think a lot of people feel okay taking shots at. Yeah. And to me, that just gives the movie a poignancy that it didn't have 10 years ago. Hmm. And also, you know, because of the reunion, there's parts of this movie that I think are funny now in a way that they weren't funny mm-hmm. 10 years ago. Um, I'm thinking specifically of the scene toward the end of the movie where James Murphy is like looking at his gear. Oh, that the, the big, the big climactic emotional moment. Yeah. And you know, yeah, look, maybe it was genuine in the moment, but I'm sorry. It just, it just seems silly now <laughs> knowing what you know about this band and other kind of very 2011 moments in the movie yeah. too. Like, like the scene, like where he, is explaining why he wants to end the band by analyzing a Kanye West tweet. Yeah. <laughs> if you remember that scene, which yes. is like, oh my God, that's so 2011. Yeah, or like Aziz um, and it's like, is that Aziz on Sorry, like crowd surfing? Yeah, probably is. You know, and Donald Glover yeah. is just in the in the, in the audience crowd. dancing around. So I don't know. To me, that and I wrote a lot a lot about that in my piece. The, the just how the movie has changed. Mm-hmm. So much because of what happened subsequently with LCD sound system from 2012 to now, which isn't necessarily, I guess, a perspective you would have because you didn't see the movie then. Although, um, I mean, it does feel like an end of of an era moment. I mean, that was another thing I took from the movie, that it feels like this is a capper Mm -hmm. on that era. And it was, even if they had stayed together, I think it was going to end. We know that it ended (laughs) pretty soon after this. Yeah, I mean... I, 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 this, this movie brought up like a lot of emotions for me, not the least of which is because like when I looked at James Murphy during that movie, it's like, you know, he would talk about like how he's, you know, the, the years of touring have caused him to go gray and it's really taken a toll on his health. And like, dude is the same age that I am right now. It's like, you're 41. That's what it looks like. Fuck man. Like maybe I just need to get a better perspective on that. But, um, yeah, I, I, I've obviously, as you've brought up from uh, the LA Weekly piece, been I've had a bit of a love hate relationship with LCD Sound System. Um, you know, like the one thing that's actually prevented me from really embracing the band is the thing that most people will say about them now, which is that oh, you know, they're just like an emblem for like music critics because James Murphy thinks about music as deeply. He's very self conscious about that and. I just never really liked the fact that it was like, no, you should like this. Like, New York is the center of the universe. We should all think about talking heads and that whole art punk, post-punk, dance punk realm. That is the center. Um, That just never resonated with me. But, you know, when I watch this movie now, um, I, I I tend to have both more positive and more negative reactions to it. Cause the live the live footage is fucking awesome. Like I never, it is good. I never quite realized how like strong of a vocalist James Murphy is uh, until I've seen like the dude can just kind of belt like and not just do the um, you know the Marky e. Smith talking thing. Um, a part of me wishes it was just a live show for LCD Sound System, and a part of me also wishes it was more of like the Chuck Klosterman interview, which by the way, like if you, if you're the type of like millennial or Gen Zer or like alpha generation who just thinks that 
indie rock from the 2010s is just the lamest shit imaginable. Like, boy, a Chuck Klosterman interview of like uh, else of James Murphy is a real Spider-Man pointing at Spider-Man meme. I mean, I actually liked it. It's funny because I agree with you. I think the performances are are really great, but. I was more interested in the interviews Same. in a way than I was in the performances. Like I which, wish it would there was either more interviews or more of the live footage. Yeah, because I I think that the interview which is, you know, strung throughout the entire film um is revealing in ways that I don't think were as apparent mm-hmm. 10 years ago and maybe revealing in ways that like Murphy wouldn't have intended. To show, and again, it goes back to this. I think intense self awareness mm. about wanting to project an importance onto LCD Sound System. That you know, look, I think that they're a pretty good band. I think that the records that they put out in the aughts are, uh, you know, range from good to great. I think most people agree that Sound of Silver, yeah, <laughs> is a great record, yeah. and then the other two. I, I I have a fondness for the for the. Uh, Self-titled debut. Mm-hmm. Uh, this uh, this is happening. Is I think hasn't aged all that well. Oh. Um, but you know, one thing I thought about when watching this movie is that REM broke up five months after this concert, essentially what? by press release. Yeah, they broke up in September of 2011. Huh. And y- you know, look, even if you love the LCD Sound System, I think you would agree that REM by any metric is a more consequential band than LCD Sound System. And and they broke up with a press release, you know? So, (laughs) you know, the self-importance of this movie, Mm -hmm. I think, um, is, again, it it speaks to that accidental satire aspect of it. But, you know, know, we've talked about this before, about, you know, this era of of aughts era indie and how, you know, like by 2013 or so, there was like this new generation uh, emerging that... uh, overshadowed a lot of the big bands from the previous decade. And we've talked about the Suburbs winning mm-hmm. the Album of the Year Grammy. You know, this concert was two months after that. Oh. So I think, you know, that spring of 2011, you know, it really is like a certain peak, I think, for that scene. Mm-hmm. And there's just so many things about this that just seem in- impossible really to take seriously now it and i think it starts like with the idea of a farewell concert Mm. you know can you imagine anyone doing like a farewell concert on this level now you know i i know you know like diarrhea planet i think you know they did like a big farewell show i think dr dog just did a farewell show me without you you, me without you has sort of been doing something like that but uh, obviously on a much smaller level yeah in terms of like booking madison square garden and Uh making a film about it um yeah, you know, I I I kind of feel like the idea of breaking up uh-huh. in general is antiquated. Yeah, like, I, I, you know what I mean. Like I, and you could see that in the gap between this film and LCD Sound System's uh, reunion, because there was I, I mean you know some people snarked about it, including me. I I felt like I snarked a lot about the reunion, but there was relatively little blowback. I mean, people were excited that they were back. And I think, like, in that, like, four or five year stretch of time, people just realized that, like, oh, no breakup is permanent. Yeah. You know, like, this is just the reality that we're in now. And, uh, but people did take it seriously, like, when this concert took place. And I know, and I referenced this before, but I wrote a piece for the AV Club 
around the time of that farewell concert that was this very sort of melodramatic piece about like mm-hmm. being sad that LCD sound system was breaking up mm-hmm. and it caused Slate, I think it was Jody Rosen, he called me a deranged fanboy. Wow. And a Slate think piece. You gave that you gave that movie a B minus. <laughs> yeah, I gave well but you know, the movie came out a year after oh, the concert. Because okay. I wrote my piece at the time of the concert. Got it. And Jody Rosen's point, and I have to you know, say that he was totally right, was that <laughs> of course James Murphy wasn't gonna retire. He was a guy in his early forties. You know, this was a guy who constructed a mythology around the band that I think a lot of people were susceptible to, including people like me who appreciated the meta aspect Mm -hmm. of LCD sound system going back to losing my edge. There was always this aspect of the band where Murphy was referencing music history and referencing the way to think about music history. And, you know, I, I think for a lot of like, people this didn't matter Hmm. you know they liked the band because they liked the songs but i think for a certain subset of music critics there was a there was an element of flattery with lcd sound system where you liked the band because you felt like you got what murphy was doing yeah and that on some one of us he was (laughs) exactly and i do think that that was an aspect of the critical reaction to the band and we should shout out larry fitz morris wrote a piece on his Substack. Mm -hmm about LCD sound system recently where he made uh, that observation. Yeah. I, th- I thought that was a pretty insightful yeah. observation. Yeah, and, and he's a New York guy and he's you know younger than us, but you know, there's a part like that was part of my critique about them uh, back in 2012 that, Oh, this is like a critics band. And like, be, like it's the old David Lee Roth against uh, Elvis Costello thing, <laughs> except like a lot of us look way more like James Murphy. I I would be really happy if I looked like Elvis Costello in his prime. But oh uh, yeah, um, but yeah, with with the, what what struck me about watching that movie is that especially nowadays there's this you it, the easiest thing in the world is to just like talk about aughts era indie as like oh. These, you know, these dude music critics like tricked us all into liking Animal Collective or they tricked us into liking LCD Sound System, which, yes, like that component of LCD Sound System, like in some ways they are tailor made for, you know, people in our position. But also like look at the crowd, man. It's like it's not just like dude. It's not just like frumpy looking dudes. It's it's a very I mean, it's a very diverse audience for like an indie band at that level. They're all having a great time and that, you know. Animal Collective isn't playing MSG, nor is like Liars or Deer Hunter or like any of these other bands that were in large part, um, you know, sustained by critical acclaim. And, you know, you look at LCD Sound System, the band itself, like it's not just, you know, with all due respect, it doesn't look like the whole steady as far as just being like, you know, due to like, like James Murphy. Um, it, you know, there, I think that there's a tendency to maybe overstate the influence of critics in a lot of ways. Um, And I think with LCD sound system, like they are popular outside of people who will never, ever, ever read, uh, you know, the AV club or pitchfork or whatever. Um, And uh, I think the part that bothers me the most about that is when you look at the, like, Oh, we're past the point of like, you know, people overly identifying with the, the singer. It's like, how is that any different than right now where you know, it's like Mitski is like literally my best friend in the world. Run me over with a truck type, you know, music writing. <laughs> like, right. have we really no, improved or it, is it just like a different lens? 
It's similar. You know, it's it's the same thing. I think what you would say about now that is positive is, is that there's just I think a greater diversity of people who feel related to who feel that a wider array of artists are relatable. Yeah, so, absolutely. So you know, so you you have all kinds of critics who want to be run over by all kinds of artists with a truck. Yeah. You know, so <laughs> you know that I guess that would be the improvement there. You know, I was thinking about. As I was saying before, that there, there is this trajectory with LCD sound system where I think in the aughts and leading into this concert where James Murphy was very self-conscious about how the band was perceived and he wanted to be perceived in a very, uh, you know, as a relevant band, as a band that, uh, that people like him hmm. would have wanted to be into. And, you know, at the time of uh, the breakup, he talked about how he didn't want LCD sound system to turn into U2 or or REM or the Pixies, like these bands that have stuck around for a long time and then and they end up making records that people don't like as much as the early stuff. Um, and again, you know, there's a certain poignancy watching the film now because LCD sound system they put out American Dream uh. in 2017. I think even people who like that record would concede that it's not as good. As the first three you, records. You wouldn't get people to admit that in 2017, I'll tell you that much. I think they would admit it now. Yeah. And, it is 82, you know, right? It is 82 minutes long. You know, and they're the band that does the Amazon special. They're the band that gets, you know, again, accused, I think, unfairly of spreading COVID and all yeah. this stuff. Um, there's a part of me that almost feels like maybe this is a sign that James Murphy isn't as self-aware anymore. Hmm. And if that's the case, I actually, in a way, find it admirable yeah. that he's been willing to do this kind of thing. Because to me, that's a more honest way to live than to be constantly looking over your shoulder and feeling like, I have to appeal to the snobbiest people out there with how I carry my band. Mm. You know, there's something kind of honest about saying, you know what, I'm a middle-aged guy. I like playing in this band. I also like making money. I'm not going to be cool no matter what I do. So I'm just going to be who I am and not worry like what a 21 year old might think of me. Yeah. Um, not that I'm defending working with Amazon. Yeah. You know, maybe maybe I'm being a little too meta with this defense. But like, there is a part of me that feels like oh, it's kind of admirable. That's maybe you're honest. not living so much in you're not living in your own head as much anymore. Yeah. Which is, I think. If we're going to go back to the relatable thing, that's something that I look at myself and I try not to do as I get older, mm. not live in my head and just kind of be who I am and not worry about how it's going to be perceived. Because, yeah, that's a terrible way to live. And <laughs> uh, if you can progress from that, I would say that's growth for James Murphy. Yeah. And if I were to, you know, we talk a lot about James Murphy, but if like I were to like watch a uh, a bonus uh, director's cut version of this movie. Like, can I just get like one quote from like another person in the band, what they think of the breakup? Like, what does Nancy Wang think about the fact that like this band is breaking up or the guitarist or the drummer? It, it's, I, I just really wish I got a better sense of like, like what the rest of the band thought about that. Yeah. I could have used a Nancy Wang cam. In the movie, because I, whenever she was on screen, I was like, "Oh yeah, she's like the most sort of electrifying presence I think on stage." Yeah. Uh, so no, anyway, maybe, maybe 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 it's time for you to get into the Juan McLean. You know, they 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 had some bangers back in the day.
now reached the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? Yes, we are on the on the tip of breaking news. Um, if you follow me on Twitter, you know damn well that Pedro the Lion dropped a surprise album uh, on the day that we're recording on Thursday. It's called Havasu. It is the second of a planned five-album run. Uh, exploring David Bazan's youth, like I, I, it's usually a trilogy. Like, what would this be? Like a pentology? I, I, I've never used that word before, but nonetheless, it um, it picks up. Like, and I, what, the one thing I love about this album is that the last one was called Phoenix. This one's about Lake Havasu, which is a place I have no knowledge of aside from MTV's uh, Spring Break House being there. Like, I think that's where the infamous um, Radiohead performance where like uh tom york has dyed hair and jumps into the pool or whatever happened (laughs) right so um but yeah it's i think it's a really interesting um look back at the being 13 years old uh in a way that is very empathetic and um you know it's it's sort of like music about being a teen but it's not at all teen pop um and it's you know the music that david bazan thought like oh my my 13-year-old self would need to hear just as like a, a older brother or a father figure. You know, there are songs about couple skating to Richard Marks, uh, wanting to play the saxophone because you heard uh, The Heat Is On in Beverly Hills Cop 2. Um, it's sort of like, and I, I'm, I'm treading on thin ice with this, but like imagine like a non-canceled version of those Sun Kill Moon albums where he taught ah. like that song Dogs. You know, it's like it's a lot kinder, it's a lot gentler, and also like you won't feel like shit for uh, listening to it in 2022. So, um, just great to have David Bazan back, one of my favorite artists, one of my favorite thinkers. Um, just, you know, really, really glad to have him back in the fold. So, since we're on a veteran singer songwriter uh, tip here. I'm going to uh, talk about Elvis Costello, which you already referenced in this episode. Yeah. Who knew that we'd be talking about Elvis Costello twice? Uh, but he has a new album called The Boy Named If. This is his 32nd album. And you know, I have to be honest that with Costello, I have not kept up with his recent albums. He's He puts out albums at a pretty steady clip. He is typically an artist that I slot in that lane of, I'm glad he's still out there. I'm glad he's healthy. I, he had a a cancer scare if in, in recent years, it seems like he's doing well now. Um, but usually when I drop into the albums, they, they seem a little snoozy to me and it's hard to really feel invested in it. But this is a record that I checked out because I saw people talking about it. And it actually, I think is like one of the stronger records that I've heard from him in recent years. And I would say that this is the kind of record that if you appreciate Elvis Costello's like noisier albums like Blood and Chocolate or Brutal Youth albums like that this is going to be an album that is up your alley uh very clangy guitars you know very again robust rhythm section just as you would expect from like prime era Elvis Costello and he's still in fine voice still writing really sharp witty lyrics um and I'll just say in general you know I I'm I'm curious about like the kids out there, if they're listening to Elvis Costello, if this is one of those canonized artists that people explore or dip their toes in, I I don't hear a whole lot of conversation about him. But I would just say, if you don't know his work, I would encourage checking out those early records that he put out from like say 1977 to 1986. Um, 
those are that's like a really strong body of work. Um, very consistent. Uh, again, I would say it's if you like lyrically incisive, robust kind of punky singer songwritery type records, uh, those albums really hold up. So check out the new record. It's called The Boy Named If, but also go back to those early records if you've never investigated. I think he's worth checking out. Uh, That about does it for this episode of IndieCast. We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box. (laughs) 